name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The feast that anchors the latter part of summer each year, my brothers and sisters, is the feast of the Lord's Transfiguration on August 6th. And the church series of ways prepares for this feast of the Transfiguration. For example, there's a Sunday in July every year dedicated to the memory of the fathers of Chalcedon. Because the mystery of the Transfiguration was defended by the theological definition given by the fathers of Chalcedon in 451 of Christ as one person in two natures. In preparation for this Sunday of the fathers of Chalcedon, we have the feast of Saint Euthemia, Euphemia of Chalcedon happens today, it falls on, on the Sunday. And uh, so we actually get to hear the, the tropar, we heard it this morning at Matins and again at Divine Liturgy, the troparion for St. Euphemia of Chalcedon, which commemorates again the council within that, with that hymn. Let's talk about the council of Chalcedon. Everybody know where Chalcedon is on the map, can you? All right, I'll tell you. I'm hoping everybody knows where Constantinople is. Otherwise, we're, it's going to be a little more difficult. Chalcedon is the, is the city that simply sits on the other side of the Bosporus from the, uh, the city of Constantinople. Today, it's sort of a suburb of, uh, of Constantinople. Didn't much for a suburb back in those days, though. That area, by the way, is probably it's arguably the most beautiful place in the world. I have an incredible memory of sailing up the Dardanelles many years ago in the early morning sun and uh, coming up to the Sea of Marmara and uh, looking out. Chalcedon is over to the, to the east and Constantinople to the west and the incredible church of Hagia Sophia and the, the morning sun shining down on Hagia Sophia. Someday, when history is rectified, we'll take out down those minarets that stand around it. But for now, they're there. Let's talk about three things this morning with respect to the Council of Chalcedon. First, let's look at the historical context. What was happening during this time? When I was young, many, many years ago, I first started reading the Fathers of the Church, the patristic age seemed to me sort of a golden age. I remember reading all three volumes of Cardinal Newman's The Church of the Fathers, which has the inscription from the Song of Solomon, who is this beautiful one coming out, glorious as the morning, shining like an army arranged for battle. And that's the way the patristic church seemed to me until I became more familiar with the actual history of what was going on during this time. We get a filtered version of it 
in church history. The major problem when this council was held in 451, the major problem was international terrorism. The century had begun with the activities of Alaric, the Visigoth king, who invaded Italy in 408 and sacked Rome in 410. It's nearly impossible to overestimate the significance of that event. For 1,200 years, this city had dominated the Mediterranean. It was the overthrow of everything. It was over a millennium. It was the Roman period. The pagans at Rome complained that the reason Rome was sacked is because it had been converted to Christianity. To answer that charge, an African bishop by the name of Augustine, bishop of a little town called Hippo, composed one of the most important works of Western civilization called The City of God. I would put The City of God among the top five books. If a man has not read them, he cannot claim to be an educated man. That book was the interpretation of what happened. That book, The City of God, became foundational to the philosophy and historical interpretation of the Christian church in the West until now. Augustine himself died in 430, exactly 21 years before the Council of Chalcedon, even as the barbarians were at the walls of his city. When the fathers of the church met at Chalcedon in mid-century, their whole world seemed to be falling apart. Barbarians were on the run everywhere. An age of international terrorism. Cities and countrysides were subject to destruction on all sides. There were political efforts to restore stability and order. For example, the Code of Theodosius was promulgated in 438, but these efforts did little to restrain the international violence of the times. The Vandals sacked Carthage the next year, just 12 years before the council. Then in 450, the very year before the council, Attila evaded Italy. Someone remarked that Attila's gotten a very bad press. He was actually a very nice guy. Even his enemies called him Hun. <laughs> There was ongoing and endless palace intrigue at Constantinople, the empire's eastern capital. On September the 21st, 454, the emperor Valentinian III, jealous of his successful general Aetius, murdered him with his own hand. On the following March 16th, two of the guards of Aetius murdered Valentinian, bringing to an end the royal house of Theodosius. It's difficult to overestimate how difficult these times were. Because of the sundry invasions and civil strife, large tracts of land, which for centuries had been under the plow, now lay fallow and fruitless. Hunger and even starvation were widespread. 
a revolt of peasants and slaves was ruthlessly put down in Gaul in 437. The population of the empire actually declined in the fifth century. There are a few times when that does happen, where populations decline. It's not usually from birth control. Those who could fled from the cities where the municipal taxes were too high for survival. When a basketball player, for example, moves from a city that has an 8% sales tax down to a city which has no sales tax, it's not hard to figure that one out, given the salaries of basketball players. You save millions of dollars every year by doing that. Well, it was the same in the fifth century. All the basketball players went down to, <laughs> fled to the countryside. Everybody fled to the countryside. Get away from the cities. Taxes were too high. Couldn't survive with all these taxes. Urban decay combined with the ruined agriculture to produce severe crisis all over the world. When people flee the cities, the tax base disappears in the city. It means there's going to be no police protection. The cities were chaotic. Everything was bad. I've searched this, the, uh, the history to find out if this was so. I'm suspecting there was a health care crisis. I don't know, but it, it was a bad time. Second, what was on the mind of the church during this time? There were numerous councils held in the fifth century, two of them later recognized by the church's ecumenical councils, Ephesus in 431 and Chalcedon in 451. Numerous councils in the church. The church did not address any single one of the, of the problems I just named. The church did not address any of those questions. Good to keep that in mind. What was the church really worried about in the mid-fifth century? In the midst of all this chaos, war, poverty, decay, and destruction, what was the one concern of the church in 451? Only one subject was able to attract the attention and concern of the church that year. It was an abbot named Eudikes, an abbot. Not the Vandals nor the Huns, not the collapsing economy, not the international terrorism and the widespread poverty, not any of those things which men today would take for important. In fact, it appeared to the people of the fifth century it probably was the end of the world and there wasn't much they could do about it. That's the way it appeared to them. Certainly Augustine thought so when he wrote The City of God. He thought the world is coming to an end. If the world is coming to an end, what's the one thing we must be concerned about, they asked themselves. This abbot, Eudikes, he is the problem. The major problem of the age was this abbot teaching a few students in his seminary chair and publishing his ideas among select friends. He didn't publish in the sense of having a, a printing press. 
He didn't have a blog site. He didn't send out emails. These are handwritten notes that are going out to friends. And the whole church calls a council to deal with this. Why? These men assembled the city of Chalcedon on the east side of the Bosporus. They came from all over the Christian world. They came from east and west. They came from the Fertile Crescent, Egypt, Europe. They came to condemn him. They came at immense trouble and great expense. In the minds of those bishops, whatever tragedy was happening in the world at that time, there was one disaster that could not be permitted to continue. The only offense that was insufferable and beyond toleration was what this abbot was doing. Which brings us to point three. What did this abbot do to create all this excitement? The teaching Eutyches spread that caused this consternation was this. I know a lot of Christians today would think this is a very minor thing. He taught that the humanity of Christ our Lord was absorbed into taken over by the divine nature. I can walk through the World Council of Churches right now, blindfolded, turn around three times and throw a spitball, and have a 50% chance of hitting somebody who holds that view. Or, at least, or some other view that's equally reprehensible. The bishops believed, however, that Eutyches was undermining everything they stood for. Because if the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ was absorbed into, taken over by his divine nature, that meant that Christ did not have and does not have a full humanity. He is not one with us. And if he is not one with us, we are not saved. In the view of the Christian church, this teaching of Eutyches was the absolutely worst thing happening in the fifth century because it cut at the only historical event that gives significance to world history, and that is the entrance of God into human flesh. I rather doubt that most folks today, as I suggested, perhaps many Christians, may accuse the bishops of overreacting, making a big fuss over a subtle point of theology, as they had done back in 325, when they objected to the insertion of a single letter into an obscure word. Because these are just words. They don't point to realities. See, in the Christian faith, we're not dealing with just words, my brothers and sisters. We're dealing with realities. If I change a single letter in a word, I've just changed a pin into a pan. I mean, two points out of three, who's going to bother about that? And it's awfully hard to write 
with a pan. What I need is a pen. And I would have no sermon at all if I didn't know how to use a pun. <laughs> See, truth is not about words. Truth is about reality. And the bishops are defending the reality of God's entrance into this world in human history as a human being with human subjectivity, human experience, that God's Son came into this world, the eternal being of God, into this world and saw this world through human eyes. And the church was persuaded then and now that God still sees this world through human eyes. And that's what separates the Christians from everybody else. Indeed, the fuss the bishops made in 451 actually brought about a serious split among Christians. It has not been healed to the present day. The bishops reacted this way because it appeared to them, as it has appeared ever since to the Orthodox Catholic Church, that Eutyches was preaching a different Jesus from the real one, and therefore in the words of the Epistle to the Galatians was preaching a different gospel. Eutyches was preaching a Jesus who was not a full human being, a Jesus who had no human soul, shared no human limitations. That is to say, Eutyches did not believe in the same Jesus as the church. He was giving the wrong answer to the most important question ever asked. What think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? Back before I came here in 1998, previous 10 years I taught philosophy at the largest institution of higher learning. I don't really believe it was, but they called it higher learning in the state of Pennsylvania. And my students, one of whom is here this morning, will remember that I began each semester in philosophy by asking the question, does the bird fly because it has wings, or does it have wings in order to fly? Right after that lecture, something like 12% of the students went out and withdrew from the class. <laughs> Going to ask questions like that. Very few students understood what in the world I was talking about. The ones that did understand were usually older women who had raised their kids and were returning to classes. You know, they, they, had, they, had, they were coming back to class and uh, in order to be entering into the job market again, they usually understood what I was talking about, saw the significance of it. 18-year-olds know it was birds, wings. You know. The most, imp the most uh, intelligent response I get was, well, what about penguins? You know, I <laughs> And while the students were gaping at me, wondering what in the world I could possibly be talking about, I would tell them, this is the second most important question that has ever been asked in the history of the world. Very often it happened that a student would come to me after class and ask, uh, what is the most important question that's been asked? <laughs> 
And I would say, what think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? So I couldn't say that in philosophy class because I was employed by the state of Pennsylvania. But if they asked me after class, I could tell them, what think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? That's the most important question. The church on the whole tends to be fairly indulgent with those who want to speculate and let their minds run on matters of secondary concern. Might as well get used to that. That, that happens in the Christian church. Theologians speculate and let their minds run. The church is fairly indulgent. The church did not come down hard on the universalism of one of the Cappadocian fathers, nor the theory of double predestination taught by one of the African fathers. Even today, one will find all manner of silly teaching on various subjects being entertained by members of the church on a host of more or less theological subjects. In fact, an interest in unimportant things seems almost a requirement to being hired as a seminary faculty. But that's all right. That's perfectly okay. In hours perusal of the internet, even the web pages of dioceses, will demonstrate this curious but distressing phenomenon of people entertaining very dubious ideas because they are Orthodox Christians. But the one thing the church cannot afford anyone to get wrong is false teaching about the person of Jesus. His identity as understood by Christians from the very beginning is essential to his mission. And what is his mission? The salvation of the world. With respect to the full humanity of Christ, the church proclaims whatever was not assumed was not redeemed. In other words, if there's any aspect that's integral to what it means to be a human being, essential to the notion of a human being, if there's any aspect of that which he did not take on, that part is not redeemed. To that extent, salvation is not universal. If God's Son did not assume our full humanity, then we are still in our sins. What, my beloved, is the church, after all, but the gathering of those who are blessed with the identical orthodox teaching of Jesus? We will sing that right after we receive communion. The first words that erupt from our lips after we receive communion. We have seen the true light. We insist that Christology, the teaching about Christ, is the church's foundation, the one rock on which she is founded. This is why when Simon Johnson, that was his name, Simon Bariona, Simon Johnson, confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus gives him a new nickname, Kephas, Petros, in English, Rocky. Because he's just confessed the faith which is the foundation, the rock foundation of the church. 
This doctrine remains absolutely the same for all ages. As we read in the epistle to the Hebrews, the Sunday before Christmas every year. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's why it's arguable to this very moment that the major events of the fifth century were the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon in 431 and 451. It wasn't the invasion of the Visigoths or the invasion of the Huns or the changing of the royal house of Constantinople, the complete disappearance of an empire in the West at the very, very end of the century. It stopped before the end of the, of the fifth century. No more Roman Empire in the West by the end of the fifth century. In retrospect, none of those things are important. What has actually shaped the thinking and lives of people since the fifth century are the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon. These gatherings against heretics. The Orthodox Catholic faith would have been compromised and ultimately lost. And the gates of hell would have prevailed. In the view of the church, therefore, the Council of Chalcedon was one of the two determining high points of the fifth century and one of the most important events that has ever happened. The subject you discussed and decided was more important than anything else happening at the time. What's the most important thing happening right today? The divine liturgy is being celebrated by Christians. We are gathered together to hear the word of God, be addressed by the spirit of God, and receive into our very flesh the body and blood of Christ so that we become the body of Christ, all of us who share the one bread. So that the blood of Christ courses through our veins. It sanctifies us, body and soul. It sanctifies the working of the brain, the operations of the heart, everything about us. That the presence of Christ enters into our mind and our being and our soul. And we are enabled in Christ to love God with our whole heart and all our soul and all our mind.